Hi everyone, this is the Shop Store Podcast, episode 12 of season 3. As always, I want to start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you? I am good. Robin, how are you? Not too bad, thanks. And Brian, how's it going? I'm good, man. Good. 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 And my name's Robin, and I'm also good. Can you imagine? Good. Everyone's good. <laughs> so, tonight we are breaking tradition. In what I think is a shop store podcast first, we have <laughs> a guest from New Zealand, and, and not Melbourne, for a change. Um, yes. And he is a good one at that. A quick scan over his Instagram, and you can tell straight away there's a lot of effort that's gone into the small details with some just absolutely beautiful pieces. I can't wait to get into some of them. Welcome to the show, Jim Culpit. How are you this evening? I am really good. I feel chuffed to be here. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show. We really do appreciate it. So, yeah. one of the ways we, we always like to start the show, just to get an, so people can get an idea of where you've come from and what you've done, is just give us a bit of a background, a bit of history, what got you to this point. Uh, in, in some ways, it's sort of going to echo a lot of what Ross said a couple of episodes ago, where you know I went through high school in the 80s, and I wasn't... Uh, wasn't dumb enough to go and have to do woodwork or metalwork or technical drawing, so I did French and German and a couple of sciences. Ooh, languages. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. And I had no no idea they had any kind of creative side to me whatsoever. It was all mm. linear kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> and then went off to university at Lincoln, learned how to drink an obscene amount of beer, <laughs> and uh, with the intention was to go and work for DOC, Department of Conservation, um, and go and be in the mountains for my life. And then right halfway through my first year at university, Doc had basically a massive downsizing. And so the, the dream of being a park ranger disappeared and uh, went off to be a ski patroller. So I did oh, that cool. for a couple of years. And some mates who would come across from Canada to Temple Basin uh, said, look, you come, come spend a season with us in Canada and we'll teach you to be a ski instructor and you can do that. So that was cool. Off I go uh, to Canada. Just a, a, sorry to interrupt, but a ski patroller, I, I've done snowboarding a couple of times, absolutely love it. I would, do, yeah. I would drop anything to go do it again. Ski patroller, what's that? Uh, you, there's kind of two parts to it. You make sure the ski field's safe. So depending on what kind of ski field it is, it's about minimising hazards, you know, putting pads up around ski pole, you know, lift towers, marking hazards, that kind of stuff. And then dealing, avalanche control things. And then dealing with people when they munt themselves. So picking up broken bodies, <laughs> dragging them down the hill in the bloodbath, that big bucket behind the skier and getting them have, off to the have hospital. You any, have you had any crazy stories or any crazy incidents? No, no, I wasn't at it for long enough to have anything right. too crazy. I, uh, I did pretty much all of my time at Temple Basin, which is a club ski field, um, in Arthur's Pass near Canterbury. And uh, pretty much everybody who would get up to it, because it's like an hour's walk from the road to get in there, big goods lift to take all your, clothes, your gear up and your skis up, but it's a, uh, an effort to get there. So the kind of people who'd make the effort to get there are fit and strong, and they already <laughs> know how to ski. And uh, so there weren't too many people who hurt themselves. A couple of broken bones and plenty of cuts and bruises and stuff, but nothing too dramatic, thankfully, because that was the part I was the least excited about. <laughs> the avalanche control and, and getting the lifts open in the morning and stuff, that was always awesome fun. But, uh, mm. yeah. So anyway, I was over in Canada, and my dad came through on his way to the university on the East Coast and took me off to the... Um, uh, Museum of Anthropology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and there was we're wandering around this museum I'm sort of ums and out, you know looking at totem poles and things and then there's this most incredible sculpture there by a First Nations artist called Bill Reed and it's it's abs- it's just it's the first time in my life I remember being stopped by a piece of art and just yeah. stopped in, you know the classic cliche stopped in your tracks and this thing is huge it's like Six and a half feet high and the same kind of width and stuff. Um, when you when you when you get a chance, you should look it up. It's just amazing, and it tells the sort of story of of the creation myth of where humans and the natural world sort of came together. This raven comes down and lands on a clamshell and peels this clamshell open, and out come these sort of infantile, the first men, you know. And this thing is insane. And not only is the statue beautiful, but it's sort of mounted in this 
uh, like Japanese style gravelly sort of pit sand thing underneath a beautiful window like a skylight from above so the lighting is insane but just the scale of it blows you away and then when you look at it you realize it's made from these huge laminated beams of cedar or um, I can't, to be fair I can't remember exactly what the timber is but and then you start realizing what's involved in making it and it's just epic and so that's the first time I not only art but a piece of woodwork I saw and I was like shoot mm. that's amazing like how the hell did you do that and then how do you see the three-dimensional object within this gigantic mm. cube? Because the cube must have weighed four or five tonnes before they started. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. So I came back uh, to New Zealand from Canada, and by that point I was sick of being poor. And, you know, being a ski bum is great. You get to wear the fancy clothes and mm. ski all the good snow, but you don't earn a hell of a lot, particularly not when you're at the beginning of your career. So went off, <clears throat> got a corporate job, call centres for an insurance company and then work for the Lotteries Commission and you know 10 or 15 years down the track of doing jobs that were I sort of happened to fall into rather than be active career choices uh, I spent a decade working for Icebreaker which is a New Zealand merino wool clothing company right. and then uh, got made redundant from them as they were going through a big change in the way the company was set up and then the opportunity kind of came along to start to do a bit of woodwork tinkering in my spare time you know. and this tinkering turns into making some bunk beds for my kids and a lamp for my wife Rosie and then you know you post this kind of stuff on Facebook here oh, look what I made <laughs> and everybody I got, I got a lot of positive results and then some mates of mine said hey those bunk beds do you reckon you could uh, you can make one of those for my kids in fact two sets of them because I've got two kids and they want to have friends come and stay and that's kind of where it all started and you know your classic kind of fitting it in in the evenings and then make a bit more you make a bit more and it just grows and grows to the point where it's taken up every spare moment you've got and uh yeah, ended up writing to my current landlord and saying, look, if, if at some point in the next year or two you get a tenancy that comes available, you know, I'd be keen to look into it, thinking I've got like a year or two to wrap my head around the idea of possibly getting into it full time. And he said, yeah, sure, you know, I'll keep in touch. And he rings back like two weeks later and says, uh, something's available in May, you want it? I'm like all right, in we go. You know, you jump in boots and all. And, uh, and I haven't looked back since then. So I've been at it full-time now for coming on four years, four and a half years. So yeah, And you're been, based in Wanaka, aren't you? I am, yeah. yeah it's right. a pretty special part of the world to be in. Um, and yeah. I was just saying to, Rob, to Robin, it's the, and the, before we got on the call here, the the beautiful thing with, with Wanaka is, is it's, uh, don't take this the wrong way, but there's plenty of people who have money, you know, and they have, uh, you know, they want nice things and they're happy to pay people to make nice things for them. So that's really lucky. I'd, I think it would be much more difficult for me to do this in, in other places where there's many more people doing it and, you know, you're going to have a little bit more argument about what things cost. But um, mm. no, it's been... Wanaka's an amazing place. I feel very lucky to be here. Hmm. Let's go back a little bit. What? Um, so you decided to build, or you had the need to build some bunk beds. What was like sudden? What was your sudden like? Was a couple of questions. What was your tooling setup, and then like mm. where did where did the know how come from? From your background, it doesn't sound like you had any kind of training. It was just suddenly you're going to make a bunk bed. Was it YouTube, or was it just make it up and see what happens? It was a. Uh bit of YouTube by that stage yeah yeah you're right to back that up there so I'd, I'd been tinkering away with stuff we have a garage at the back of the property here at the back of our house in Wanaka and it's never had a car in it you know so it was I made our wee dining table by sticking three pieces of radiator plywood together and some legs on it and thought I thought I was a furniture maker you know so yeah. but I started off with a skill saw and a big long straight piece of timber as a straight edge and you know yeah. as a makeshift track saw and so one DeWalt drill that you could take the chuck off so you could yeah. have the, the screwdriver on the inside and the drill bit on the outside. I thought that was the business. It lasted for years, that thing, actually. It was <laughs> epic. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a bit of that. And I had discovered SketchUp while I was working for Icebreaker. 
Yeah. And that's when I realised I had a three-dimensional facility in my brain, really, you know, that I could see something in my mind's eye and then turn it into a three-dimensional object on the computer and start to play around with it. Mm. And so originally it was going to be architecture for me. I'd always been fascinated by by beautiful houses, beautiful buildings and things. And in my spare time in hotels and places all around New Zealand and Australia and, you know, travelling for work, once the work was done, I'd just sit there on the computer designing houses, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just for no reason other than to... It's like sketching in a sketchbook, but you do it in SketchUp. So I had been doing that for five or six years when this furniture thing sort of... uh, then we needed a bunk bed for the kids because we've got a relatively yeah. small house and they were at the point where one being in a cot cot and one being in the little bassinet thing wasn't working and so it's like, oh shoot, the bedroom was tiny so the only way to make it work was a bunk bed. And so, yeah, spent a month or two figuring it out and sketch up and made it for them for Christmas and assembled it in the lounge and they couldn't, you know, blew their minds. Very small minds at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so suddenly, if you you jump back forward to where you suddenly had this lease of a um, like a commercial building, um, what was the plan? Like, oh, holy shit, I now have to pay a, a lease on a on a building and suddenly make money. Yeah, it, it, it was sort of almost from necessity. Like, I had at that point, it's, I was working for some good friends of mine, um, and. We were. I was helping to export New Zealand-made ice cream and frozen vegetables to Japanese trade customers, and I was, you know, wasn't entirely hundred percent tasked mentally with that, and I could right. do my job in four days a week. And so Ben, my boss, was really generous and said, "Yes, you can do it in four days a week, not five. So. I was at that stage, you know, the word of mouth thing had just got rolling. It was people asking right. me to make a a bench here and a wardrobe here, and you know, help out make it just the stuff you make, you know, the the drawers and the kitchen bits and pieces, and and it had got to the point where I was I either had to do it full time and get the space, or just stop doing it because I was exhausted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, literally every night, every weekend, every holiday, and I was loving it. I was absolutely stoked, but it's like I can't continue to have a job and and to the, the to do this job was going to be broken. You, you know, talking about Ross, that was one of the questions that we put to Ross about the uh, the work, how it came in. Like, what was the in the early stages? What was the frequency? Because what you've just described, I think, is that's what everyone has in their head. That's the that's the American dream. That's how it's going to go. You're going to build one thing, and it's just going to roll. Yeah. From from my experience, and again, talking to people like Ross and, and everyone that we've had on the show, it doesn't normally happen like that. You normally mm. have your first person, and then a year goes by, and then you have your second <laughs> client, and then maybe it's six months. So it's really amazing to hear that you got that, that traction so quickly. Do you think there was anything outside of the woodworking space that may have influenced that? I think it was a matter of timing as well. I think Ross said this too was was a bit of serendipity in that at the same time as I'm taking this moderately ludicrous move and jumping into it full time, people were genuinely starting to appreciate that, you know, handmade things that people take a while to make and that you can potentially own for your entire life have a lot more value than something you buy from Ikea or Freedom Furniture or whatever and that sure you're going to pay two or three times the price but you know if you get it right you know you design something that with the client that's going to work for them the you know they see that benefit um, so there's part of it was that and part of it was also I was really lucky my, my wife Rosie's lived in Monaco for coming on 30 something years and she knows everybody she's one of those little magnetic connectors uh, there <laughs> it is so there it is. I, I lucked into this amazing network of really really cool people um, right. who they, they're the good old fashioned dirtbags of Monica you know they're the people who are here because of the skiing and they just loved it but they're the ones in some ways who, who really kicked it off for me you know it's, mm. it's neat was there much like, other? Was there many other makers in Wanaka, or there, was that there, again there are, something that helped? Not, to be fair, Brian, there weren't heaps, but there were three or four other guys doing similar-ish kind of stuff. 
Um, and everybody seemed to have their own sort of aesthetic niche, you know, and it didn't feel like when I came along there were many people doing the really paired back, linear, modern kind of stuff that my work looks like. You know, there are quite a few. There's Simon King, for example, who was an older guy who would make, you know, beautiful pieces that were more, more organic and curvy and a bit, you know, he did a lot of steam bending and stuff and he would sell his work at the market. So he was really visible and out there. And, you know, a bunch of the guys who were also the joiners, really, as well as furniture makers, but the joiner is their primary business. Um, and I have kind of, like a lot of us do, you end up making a fair bit of joinery as well as... So when I say joinery, I mean kitchens and wardrobes and, and right. you know, your classic boxy stuff. Um, <clears throat> so I've done a fair bit of that as this whole thing has gone along, but it hasn't been really where I've wanted to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been interesting. You kind of get pulled where you go. Is, that a, uh, is there a bread and butter issue with... Do, do we do you take on... Like, I probably I probably class myself in the same boat where I'd rather not be making cabinets, but it's easy money, um, and, you know, I'm reasonably good at it, and I'll take on the jobs just to kind of fill a, a gap in the calendar every now and then, um, which seems like most of the time at the moment. Um, yeah. uh, is that is that something like you what you're doing, or will you just really say no to more of those kind of jobs? I eventually I'd like to say no to them for sure. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I, I I've never had any education in this. I've just learned as I've gone along. So I've just seen every opportunity to do a job as a way to make to to learn from it. You know, and yeah. making a whole bunch of boxes that have to be perfectly rectangular you know and a mil- mm. within a mill's tolerance or so is, is actually quite challenging yeah. and it's you know it's kind of there's lots to learn from that so no is this uh, yeah a large part of its necessity is just got to pay the bills so yeah. I haven't really said no to just about there've only been a few things I've said no to to be fair yeah. Um, yeah. but not not many um, but the goal is to eventually get towards that more production furniture side of things and and just have your designs largely done batched okay. out yeah, all the jigs are ready to go and then you know in a perfect world that would be 70 60 percent of the business is that stuff that's you know the problems already solved and then 40 percent mm. of it's more bespoke beautiful slow cooked things yeah because just look going through a lot of your instagram that was the first thing that i noticed is that it, there's a lot of it is production line stuff particularly in the, the later work you know those yeah. stools that you've got um, you've got there's another set of what looks like um, some type of legs coming together um, yeah there's a lot of that production work and it's funny because when you talked in the beginning the work, the background that you were talking about I th- thought you were going to go in the more arty one-off grand mm. design piece so it's interesting that you've come I mean, to it- this yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've not yet had a client who has come to me, you know, like the Simon Ducks kind of scale of, you know, make me this thing. I'm happy to spend 30 grand on it. Mm. You know, big, amazing creation for a wall or whatever, you know. That, that'll come along at some point. But, you know, things like those stools, you know, they just churn through. It's been fantastic. You know, I sell those. I sell them direct, but almost all of those have been sold through a local interior designer store, Melanie Craig, oh, really? here in Wanaka. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and it, <laughs> I keep on making up six, and then there's another batch of six come through, and then another batch of six. It's like, holy moly. It's actually, it's a really clever little design. Like, it looks like something that can be batched pretty easily. Like, the different elements in it, everything's sort of 90 degrees, except for the, the centre piece. Is that is that bang on? Yes. It so it's three and a half. The three and a half degrees is the angle that it's sort of off. You know, the the yeah. s- display for the legs is three and a half degrees. But then you're right, ninety degrees at the top for the seat. So then putting this, the the oak component together, and there's no sort of funny angles to try to get clamping calls at or anything else. That's a ninety yeah. degree. But then the birch ply component has that three and a half degree at the top and then the three and a half degree line at the bottom. Uh it's, it's birch ply the infill bit. Yeah. Yeah. Right, okay. Birch and ply. you just get those CNC'd and, and bolted. I do. Yep. 
Oh, you do? You outsource those parts? Yeah, I do. That's pretty cool. At some point, I will have a CNC machine. (laughs) And I'm currently frotting over, you know, various options. And there's that Yeti tools thing. Have you guys seen that in your feed somewhere? I've heard of it. I can't recall. Yeah, it's like this quite a cool concept where they've got this big bar which runs underneath the sheet sort of reinforce the the vertical axis whatever that is the z i think so that as as your spindle's moving up and down that's always got this big reinforced bar underneath it but it's sort of running almost like on a like a a much narrower ladder trellis thing okay so it's easy Hmm. to assemble pull down yeah it's a it's like a kit set cnc for like on-site work and stuff yeah, it is, but it's, you know, it's still it's worth like seventeen or eighteen grand. So, yeah. and looking at, you know, of course, every video they put on their website is going to taste fantastic. But yeah. it, it's it seems to me like that's about the maximum I could even remotely conceive of spending on something. So you know, but anyway, in the meantime, no, I get them outsourced um, and get those, those, those cut in chunks. I think it's three sheets of birch ply will do the. Enough for 26 stalls, I think, off the top of my head. Do you have somebody local that does that, or you have to go a bit further afield? Uh, The guy literally right next door to me, um, Wayne at Cabinetry, used to do them, but he's so busy now with with joinery. (laughs) He's gone from himself and two or three guys, CNC bed, and then an assembly room a couple of doors down. Now he's got to have, I don't know, a staff of 10 or 12. They're just vans wow. coming in and out the whole time, <laughs> taking off stuff. Because the, the housing boom in Wanaka is just out of control. It's nuts. Yeah. And he's he's a top-end joiner, and uh, he just doesn't have time for me to be slipping these things into production schedule. I was going to say, you're going to carry on with the birch ply now that it's 50% more expensive. Yeah. I kind of have to. <laughs> I, I, and you sound so happy about yeah, it. Yeah, no, like, I would love to find an alternative. Radiart is just too soft. Yeah. Uh, I no, don't trust sure. I, don't, I just know that in 10 years that stuff's going to fall to pieces. Um, yeah. And so I don't, I don't trust that. I can't use MDF. It, you get pop, do you get poplar there? Uh, yeah, you yeah, get a poplar core. But it's, yeah. it's pretty soft. It's still pretty soft. Yeah, it's really so. Like it's lightweight as uh, well. The yeah. stuff we get they call poplar is so light. Uh, yeah, I don't know if solid poplar is actually that light, but it seems almost balsa wood like. Really weight. Yeah, but whatever they're um, selecting for those cores must be some weird sapwood or something because it's super light. So no, that that wouldn't work, Brian. I was thinking you could change to uh, like the mixed hardwood that they have here but it's a bit splintery I don't know how well it would cut yeah yeah true I mean shoot the the majority of splinters I've got have been from birch ply so <laughs> birch is pretty splintery too you um, stain most of them yes it's mostly stained or painted and um, so it can probably be anything yeah, but... yeah you're right there for sure the I really like the white ones you did the white ones to me it's just popped out like that white inner frame looks so awesome the goal is to eventually (laughs) uh, find a find a a week or two or three when I can make up a proper you know rainbow four or five four or five six different colours that could fit with it yeah and get into a studio somewhere get a photographer to photograph them properly so that they can put them up on a website and people can click and choose you know here's the red insert with the Mm -hmm. walnut top or whatever and go from there, but mm. yeah, no, the it's just so. Happy. I guess it's because it's being sold through the, pretty much just a single place through Melanie's store that the store, the, the stalls I've got in the store to sell from are the regular oak with the black insert, <laughs> so that just keeps on going through. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems like a design that would just keep selling. Like like um, Brian said, it's such a classic design, and I've seen you con- like over the years. I've seen you just like making them, always batching them out. And it seems like you've already got yourself like your production one, like your kind of yeah main branded piece, and and everything from there could just about work up from there. And, and like you could go, I could imagine you doing like tables and stuff based off that design with mm. elements of it. You yeah, know? and it all sort um, of stemmed from the start point of like I love when you see a couple of different types of materials mixed up not just colour contrast but material you know the texture yeah the texture of it and like you know fully fanboying on Brian's pinch bent from way back in the day you know the the beauty of the concrete mixed up with the 
proper hardwood you know it looks looks amazing mm-hmm. you know and i've loved the idea of having concrete and timber coming together but i haven't had minutes to use it yet but yeah you're right as a i feel pretty stoked with it as a as a, a start point piece for the range and it's you know all the jigs are made up i can you know make six stalls in probably two, two or three days you know depending Nice. Depend, if they want the black, black on black, there's a bunch more labour in getting that to happen. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would you consider looking into flat pack? Yes. So that, that's that's exactly where it came from. The, they wouldn't be truly flat, flat. But it started. The first lot I made were for a friend of mine, Joey, and she wanted some stalls for her bench. And I was like, well, what about this? You know, I'd, I'd made this quick prototype out of some queeler and, and some radiator ply which is actually still in our kitchen now <laughs> that original prototype and mm. it's like yeah that, i like those lines it looks good and so i made some for her and they have bolts you know your inserts with the yeah, yeah. yeah those classic flat head mid brown kind of furniture connecting bolts yeah so it's before yeah, i knew about jcbs yes yes so <laughs> before i really knew much about actually trying to find beautiful hardware and uh but the, mm-hmm. the goal robin was that they would be flattish packable um yeah and i need to do some more playing now that i'm a bit more advanced with that design just to play with how that would look rather than the domino connector that I've got through. Mm. Well, it's not a domino connector because that's a product. It's a domino <laughs> screw hole cap. Yeah. So I used to, initially I would domino right through the oak into the birch ply. And just because I didn't want any screws yeah. in there at all, I was like, no, I'll go full purist on this one. I assumed that's what you were doing with it, yeah. Yeah, but it, it, it ended up being quite a palaver to get the birch ply to stay in the right place, you know, orient it correctly against the oak. And um, so I just. Uh, chuck the glue along the line of the birch, clamp the oak to it, and then screw through a little five mil deep mm. domino hole. And then, rather than a circular screw cap hole, I chucked a domino screw cap. Oh, you you put the domino in it. Oh, mm. that's a cool idea to hide the screw. Yeah, because it, not many people do it, so you would assume it's just a domino going through. Yeah, totally. Mm. And it, it, like I say, it was at first, and it just ended up. I'm saving myself. 25 minutes half an hour per stall and the only person who knows that it's not a domino is me and I'm probably the only one who cares <laughs> from, from the customer's <laughs> point of view they look at it yeah. and go that looks pretty so that's that's all that matters really <laughs> talking about dominoes that was going to be one of my questions yeah. <clears throat> possibly it's just because there's a lot of the bent the, the stools in it but there's a lot of domino oblong or whatever you would yeah. call it shapes in your work is that a is that a, a, a well um, a well oiled machine in your workshop? It is. I, I love my domino. <laughs> I still remember getting there and just going, "Oh yeah, here we go! This thing's amazing." <laughs> it, I mean, it, initially it's all for hidden stuff. You know, you're just chucking the, yeah. the dominoes in the mitre joints, and just the difference in the strength is crazy. You used to have to try to put cut splines in them, and all the challenge of getting your you know 45 degree piece of timber to meet your saw blade at the right angle and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's doable, but it's really hard. And the domino is just bap, 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 away you go. Yeah. It's We've talked about it on the show before and how it seems like it's just, it's it's the welding version of woodworking where you can just stick wood together. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> yeah, with a reason, yeah, you're not, not too far wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really interesting to, to see it being used for something other than, than that Joey you use your domino well you used to use your domino quite a bit didn't you until the, the, yeah. the, there was a bit too much slop in it uh, I, I didn't like how and maybe it's just my domino but it doesn't seem to ever align flush if you want to join two boards together like end on and you want to put a domino in there to keep them um, keep those two boards flush like say you're joining or you know, let's say two bench tops coming together I always found that the domino just wasn't flush enough. I'd have to then go and re-sand whatever I just joined. And it was a pain in the butt. Um, I, I would use it, but it wasn't as good as I thought it should be. And then I ended up getting the Lamello Zeta P2 and started playing with that a bunch, which isn't really the same tool, but you can use it for both things. But mm. it really is a different kettle of fish. It's really for cabinetry. Um, 
and now I've got the panther router, and that that's the business that that does joinery. <laughs> yeah, we haven't actually talked about that for a while. Are you still using it quite quite regularly? Uh, not as regularly as I should, but I I'm a much changed substantially yeah, over the last. I'm much more yeah. comfortable with it. I um now I like when I first got it, I would have to like get it out, lay out all the parts, and get the instruction manual, and just kind of how do I set this up? You know, like what are the steps? And now I can just like throw it on the bench, and you know, five minutes later, I've got a mortise and tenon, and away you go. Mm. Um, it's just annoying. I don't have a dedicated cart for it. I have to kind of drag it up onto the table, and that stops me Is from it using heavy, it. Uh, not really. It's just awkward to hold. It's a really mm, yeah. awkward shape, and I don't want to grab the obvious parts because they're the moving parts that have to stay with a you know nice and accurate. And so you've got to kind yeah. of reach underneath it and hoist it up like it's some delicate operation and it's never that easy so uh, most people have a dedicated cart cart to put them on and with drawers underneath with all the parts you need and i'm just not that clever yet so uh, yeah i think i've seen i've seen phil more he's one that he's done with. yeah yeah, I mean, yeah it, so it makes 100 percent sense to have it on its own little stand that's just as big as the machine and then you can do whatever you want with it did you see that what Phil Morley was doing with the, the way he's almost like indented inside the end of a, a through tenon. Yeah, yeah, oh, love that. That's filthy. It's just yeah. so <laughs> the amount of time in that oh. stuff, eh? And, and the, the tolerance <laughs> for getting it wrong is just infinitesimal. You know, to, that was yeah. that one with the, the the coffee table with round legs, yeah. and the yep. tenons came all the way through and were like in a negative detail of them their own. Um, I, you know what, I really loved all the joinery on that, but when I saw the final piece, I was like a little underwhelmed, and I thought, um, for the amount of work in that piece, I probably didn't need all that work, but mm. I applaud all that went into it, I love it, but I was like, oh, it's kind of just a bit like a coffee table. Yeah, <laughs> I reckon it's probably my favourite piece of this. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. It's so different. It's different amazing though how you, you, you see all these things people make and it's you, you get, it just sparks off your idea factory. You just go, oh, oh, oh. You know, and you're yeah. not, not copying at all. Yeah. It's just like, I love how that happened and how could you do something like that? Oh, yeah, you know, it's just it's bizarre and that's the stuff I said no idea f- for 20 years of my life I had no idea that that was you know a latent part of my brain was sitting there doing nothing <laughs> mm. yeah that was one, one of my next questions was what is your inspiration or are there any people you're taking inspiration from to, to further your kind of design ideas and obviously Philip Morley is one that oh, you're keeping I mean, an eye the, on it's just I, I, I've been really uh, fastidious with my Instagram accounts I follow in that I don't follow any of yeah. my friends because I don't want to see their cats and their babies and their christenings and all this kind of stuff. I just, it's like, I, that's Facebook for me. That's all of the cat videos and crap. So for me, I've, I've kept Instagram uh, purely to woodwork. And so I just can sit there and just scroll through. I, to be fair, I can't say there's one there's anybody specific right. who's an inspiration it's more just you know they get this constant tide mm-hmm. of of creative stuff just washing over you and somehow all the different rocks rub together and your sand falls out the bottom it's it's a bizarre analogy anyway that's uh yeah that's a lot of stuff just seems to pop out of somewhere on the um, subject of inspiration, a little off topic, but if you look at the Wood Reviews entries into the Maker of the Year, yeah. I think it's one of those, um, there's a guy, I completely don't know his name, but there's a chair with, that's made of a whole lot of slats, and the legs are made of like 10 mil slats. And then they're joined at the cross rail where you sit on, and then they continue up to the back. So the leg is like two slats, and then it goes up and becomes the the top, uh, the backrest as well. And the whole piece is like a thousand little pieces glued together, but it, it's so seamless and beautiful. And unless you're right dead on, you can't tell that it's a whole lot of slats, and you just have to be a couple of degrees off from 
front on and then it just looks like kind of a solid mass of chair that you would be used to seeing and to me I saw that and I was just like some people are just on another level when they're thinking about these designs is that the high back it was posted about a day ago yeah Um, but after reading it uh sounds like he'd he'd been developing that design for more than 10 years but Mm. um i guess that's that's why because it's bloody beautiful yeah Mm. interesting piece yeah going through the pictures of your workshop jim yeah I've, i've noticed you've got some pretty nice tools for, uh, I don't think we've ever seen, we've had someone on the show who's had three hammer tools in one shop. So you've got, it looks like you've got the table saw, the jointer, and the band saw. Yeah. Do you, did you work up to that or? Oh, yeah. Just yeah, yeah. No, I definitely just, did. <laughs> I know. It's, no, I, uh, it's like this is a, a workshop full of sports cars. Yeah. So when I, when I first started selling stuff, you know, rather than just using a skill saw and a straight bit of lumber, I, uh, my mum and dad bought me a, like a Cabratec cabinet saw, you know, saw bench, classic kind of hobbyist home saw bench kind of thing. And I beaved away with that for three or four years. Um, and it did, and I got to the point where I was spending 10 or 15% of my time correcting the errors that I would make through trying to <laughs> shove full sheets through a, you know your, your standard sort of size hobbyists table saw and uh, my brother and his husband lent me a bunch of money to buy the table saw and the planer and a dust collector um, <laughs> when I when I went off to do this thing full time and that was an absolute godsend they were amazing you know literally set me off on the way there because, I mean, <clears throat> my dad had always said, don't bother buying cheap tools. It's a false economy. Mm. You know, wait, save, and then buy good, good tools. And yep. I've lived sort of by that sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you just have mm. to buy the cheap thing and then you kick yourself. The clamps are the worst example of that. Is Unwind clamps or Irwin, whatever they are, from Mitre 10 here. And, you know, <laughs> three or four Ben, just proper cranking down on the and the arm is just bending away from himself and you know it's it's tricky but no the, the hammer stuff is is beautiful to use i'm pretty stoked with it so yeah the, i had the table saw and the um jointer thicknesser and then just pulled the trigger on the band saw uh late last year so yeah i no, actually i started kicking that off when we came out of lockdown last year and then, of course, everybody had wanted to buy a pencil during lockdown, so it took <laughs> it took the supply, the hammer suppliers, like six months to get it to me. Um, not, oh. Yeah. Oh. but it got there. I'm pretty stoked because again, the little Cabratec bandsaw that I was using was way over tasked. I'm trying to shove oak through it, trying to <laughs> just it was, yeah, it was not not the right tool for the job. Actually, I think the hammer guys threw Felder uh, through. Was it Jacks? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, certainly in, in New Zealand, at least, they pretty much they don't hold much stock, and everything is bought in from Germany. And yeah. I had to wait eight months for my saw. Eight uh, months. Yeah. You might not even and be that was, a woodworker. That was pre-pandemic, that wasn't it? What's that? <laughs> that was pre-pandemic. That was. Yeah, they built yeah, it to order. Yeah. And so, like the the build date, it was like a month before I actually got it. <laughs> so, um. That's pretty epic. I, I got to say, I love that the length of your your sliding table. I'm kicking myself for not going the K4 because the K3, yeah. the table's only twenty two hundred long. The, the yeah. throw of the whole table, and so I'm forever having to take the miter off the guide off the. The support so panel from the sliding table, yeah. so I can push a whole twenty-four forty sheet through it to get the first. Yeah, that's rope. not cool. That's nah. that was my number one number one for my table saw was if it that has to have at least a two point five meter stroke. Otherwise, what's the point in having a, a it's not a panel saw. It's it's just a really good table saw. Yeah, uh, which I guess probably is the difference. Um, that, that was definitely a rookie's error there. Like that was me not having really done much full sheet stuff before and not really thinking it through to be fair but that's cool you know it's done me really well for five six five years or so now I'm the other really good thing 
with the long table on a panel saw is that you can straighten out a board. We can yeah. we can get with just over three meters on on it, and so um, you know, I, there's no way I'm going to straighten out a three meter board on my two meter long jointer. So uh, doing it on the panel saw is, is the way to go. Mm. Yeah. No, and so Robin, the the workshop I I was in a uh, all of the units in the in a little sort of bank of workshops where I work are um, similar kind of size. And the one I was in first for the first three and a half years or so, four years, was similar kind of footprint to where I am at the moment, but it had like this office thing at the back that I was using for a finishing room, spraying room. And it was great for that, but it meant the rest of the workshop floor was quite compacted. And then Simon King Woodwork, he he's an older fella, and he was needing to sort of slow down a little bit, and they left Wanaka, they've moved to the Waira Wrapper, and so he said, look, do you want to move into my space? I was like, yes! It's just two metres wider and it doesn't have this office at the back. So all of a sudden I just feel like I'm drowning in space. It's just <laughs> it's the most freeing feeling. And also I got to get rid of all of the tritus that have built up and reset the whole workflow and make the pretty tall wall to hang stuff on and you know, it's it's uh, it certainly ain't fancy, the tall wall, but it's it's pretty cool to have the things that you know you use all the time right there. And yeah, I must, it's cool. I must say it's even though it's daunting to think about shifting workshops, um, it's like you say, it's very freeing, and I'm I'm so looking forward to getting into my new workshop because I've already laid it out virtually. I know I know how it's going to be, assuming that my workshop is going to be the size I think it's going to be, um, and and being able to set it up in a way more efficient order to what I have now. So, yeah. How, how big is the workshop going to be, Joe? Uh, pretty much the same. I'm, I'm right now. I'm like 195 squares, and I'm, I'll probably build 200 squares. But it's going to be right now. I've got a very kind of long, rec, long rectangle, and there's really only one way everything points is down the long length, and so yeah. there's not much room for setting up machinery. And so I, I really want to build more of a square workshop. Um, and if you, it's funny how just changing the shape of the building and you play with your tools inside that shape and you can get way more options for, for layout and workflow and um, using the space and even I'm going to add internal walls because the one thing I, I don't like is having just four walls in a workshop is you know in, a, in about 10 minutes you've used up the, the available wall space you've got nowhere to lean anything nowhere to work up against and so you've got to add you've got to have some wing walls of some description to to but break up the space what about a center workbench are you is that um, not your you still have one you like you still i'll still have like an island type assembly table workbench okay but that space doesn't have to be part of a giant other space like the whole space i can break up like a and out of so if my walls are going to be I don't know, 15 by 20 or something like whatever that is, whatever it works out to. Um, yeah, I can break up my space so I, I can have like all my big tools in the middle and around the edge. I can have work workbenches around the edge. I can have a finishing room and by building a finishing room that creates like three internal walls where I can put work, workbenches up against and all sorts of other things. So, mm. um, really, I, I, what I want to do is break up the space to really um, cut down on dust as well. I'm going to yeah. spend an outrageous amount of money on a proper extraction system. So, it'll be an exciting project. Yeah, that's one. Yes. The one thing I'm missing with that that little office come finishing room is is yeah, close the door, spray some finish, close the door walk away and you know that you're not going to have dust just falling all over it and mm. I spent most of today spraying finish and just spray and then you kind of have to sit there and twiddle your thumbs for at least half an hour before you move and want to stir yeah. up anything <laughs> it's a nightmare yeah. so I got, I've got ideas of getting some old uh, truck canvas you know making like a big concertina screen sort of thing that can pull oh, yeah. out and, and make like a collapsible f- finishing room because you only need it every once in a while I don't want to have permanent mm spray booth mm. set up but yeah that'd be a lovely idea there's a guy in the states i can't remember his name he does stuff out of recycled skateboards old broken skateboards yeah um uh, mm, yeah i know come on, come on joey 
Come on, Joey. No, I can't do it. No, me neither. Anyway, he does some pretty cool things. With he's moved into a new workshop. And he's that's got folding right. stairs that fold yeah. up against the wall, and he's got a spray booth that sort of folds down, and it's got a like a, a curtain yeah. that you pull across it. It was I've really neat. I've heard about this spray booth. I haven't seen it yet, but everyone was raving about the design of how clever it is for the space. Yeah, I should really, really be able to um, remember who that was. When you guys are talking about spraying in a room where there's dust, where there was dust. What are you spraying? Because all my experience with spraying polyurethane is that stuff goes everywhere. So it's not, I'm not worried about the dust. I'm worried about the stuff going, the, the polyurethane. <laughs> my car, yeah. I once tried spraying in my garage in the bay next to my car. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness it's the old car because there's now my my white spoiler on the car is now yellow because of the polyurethane. It's just yellowed over time. So yes. I'm not worried about the dust. I'm worried about the stuff in my workshop. Yeah, I'd tarp everything up. You know, you know yeah. the plastic timber wraps that the timber companies send your, your supplies in. I just keep all of those and fold them up and then drape all the big tools with them, you know, all the cast iron stuff. And, right, okay. And it dep- depends how much I'm doing. I've got a fan at the back of the workshop, so roll a door up, fan, generally speaking, pushing everything out so, you know, stuff doesn't settle too much. Um, but, yeah, mostly it, what are we spraying? It's mostly poly, versions of poly. I haven't got to two-pack yet. I haven't asked any of the other guests this because I they're all in Australia and I've got no real clue as to where they are. Yeah. So I know that Wanaka is a fairly small place and how does it go for getting your supplies? Um, I only ask that because I've got a lot of options in Auckland and I could pick up the phone and have somebody pick out whatever I want and they would pick it and wrap it and throw it on a truck. But that means I'm relying on someone else picking out my boards, and I really want to be the guy picking out boards for certain pieces. Uh, I really want to be that guy too. (laughs) You don't have the option where you are? I don't have the option. No, we've got placemakers and Mitre 10 and ITM, you know, your your timber merchants for people building a house. And so I get all my, pretty much all my hardwood and sheet goods from BBS timbers out of Christchurch. And so Aaron and the guys there do a great job. You know, I, when you're spending thousands and thousands of bucks with them, I think they do a pretty good job of, of picking out the boards. Some of the you can't help but get duds. And I would love to just peel through a wood stack and say, yes, yes, no, no, yeah. no, yes. That would be just pure joy. So I haven't had that in my career yet, to be mm-hmm. fair. So, yeah, it all, all comes through those guys or uh, Plymasters, or um, prime panels for the HPLs and the veneer boards and stuff. So yeah, so at the end of the day, you've you've just got to pick up the phone and rely on the fact that yep. someone's going to send you a good product. Yeah, exactly. And I always order. You know, everybody does. I'm sure you order more than you need just to pick through it, but it becomes challenging. You know, you don't want to waste money. But, yeah, I'm um, the opposite there. I I. Because I can pick out my own boards, I order, I quote about exactly what I need, and I go in and I mark out almost all my parts on my boards, and I generally buy about a third of what I actually quoted for timber because I just squeeze it all out of the boards and get it, and so I don't have to buy one board too much. But that starts <laughs> yeah. getting a bit stressful sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually I mean, not the best way to do it. Once, once you've spent three hours in the timber yard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, what am I doing? Just buy yeah. an extra board. <laughs> yeah, the amount of time I spend on on uh, SketchUp, like like taking a model of something and then copying a flat face and rotating it and spinning it and dropping it onto a board and then copying a flat face and spinning yeah. it around. And you d- I just know if I wasn't such a tight ass, you you buy one of those proper design programs and just click some button somewhere which says sheet optimization and off you go. Uh, I think actually SketchUp does... Uh, I haven't used it, but I know it makes a cut list, but I've never done that. Mm. But um, it doesn't do nesting, I don't think, which is yeah. putting your parts out on panels. But... Um, you really only need to do that if you're CNCing though because when it's one thing to nest all your parts on a sheet of plywood and go yeah I can get everything out of one sheet and then you try and do that on a table saw 
where you've got all you can do is cut straight lines and it doesn't work uh, that's yeah. where the CNC actually can cut around corners and you know cut between all the panels so nesting yeah, two, two rectangles that overlap each other will work yeah it's a pain yeah. in the ass and often you need to do that for, for optimization. but um, yeah, that's why CNC's are CNC's yeah yeah you get good at doing that in your own head though and well not in your head on the computer thinking about how you're going to cut it as you're laying the things out um yeah but there's initially when you start off you don't think about that you just mess the hell out of everything and it's like oh shit (laughs) i'm gonna cut that out that's the biggest lesson i think if you were going to tell any woodworker like learn learn a skill it's going to be what are you going to do with the piece left over after you cut this how big is the off cut and can like what are you going to do with it it's not just rubbish it's like that's what you need to think about rather than the piece you want is what's left and what shape is going to be left out of your sheet once you cut this um, yeah like those stool components the internal part from the ply web I keep all of those use them for making jigs and yeah. you know, they end up like it's probably 350 or so and 250 or something wide at the widest point of the bottom so it's quite useful timber mm-hmm. I've got a huge stack of them and I just pick away at them once in a while for the spaces <laughs> Uh, before I forget, it's Wobi Design. Wobi. It's the guy that's the collapsible spray booth. It's it's a really neat solution. That's right. Cool. The silence right. is we all write that down. <laughs> yeah, give it a look. Yeah. All right, I reckon we'll leave it there then. Um, so for anyone who wants to check out your stuff, Gem, it's um, Emerge Woodwork. Yep. You've got emergewoodwork.co.nz as well. Mm-hmm. Are you taking orders or are you a busy man who can't take any more uh, projects? Out? So the recent lockdown we just had was fantastic for the sole reason that it meant I got to finish off all of my design <laughs> that had been sitting there that was going to be spread across the evenings for the next two months. So now I'm pretty much filled up through January now. Being a one-man band, it's pretty easy to get full pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, There's nothing yes. wrong with that. No, I'm pretty happy with that. <laughs> yeah. All right, so to everyone listening, thanks very much. If you did enjoy the show, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. It really does help us out. Joe and Brian, thanks again for hanging out. And Jem, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a very, very cool episode tonight. Awesome. All right, everyone, take care, and we'll see you in the next one. See ya. See you, fellas. Ciao.